So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and then also turn to Acts chapter 3, because my hope is that we're going to see Acts chapter 3 as an illustration of what we're looking at in 2 Corinthians 13. All right, so let's, let's dive right in. We'll read our verse from 2 Corinthians, and then we'll hop over and see it unpacked. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that was week one, and the love of God, that was our study last week, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there at the top of your notes, we'll kind of get ourselves oriented to the meaning of this phrase as Paul is using it here. This fellowship of the Holy Spirit equals or means a company of believers made alive and drawn together by the Spirit, bringing life to the world. In other words, I don't believe that Paul, in context here, is talking about your fellowship with the Spirit, my fellowship with the Holy Spirit, in our just private times. He's talking about the church at Corinth as a fellowship of the Spirit, a company of the Spirit, a band of brothers and sisters drawn together by the Spirit. The Spirit has made this this collective possible, and then he sends us out on mission for the glory of Jesus. You think about it, the first century Roman world was familiar with the faith of the scribes and the Pharisees. They could finish their sentences. They knew that. They were familiar with the fellowship of the rule keepers. They were familiar with the fellowship of the religious insiders. They had heard that before. They weren't prepared for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. They, They didn't have a ready defense for a band of brothers and sisters indwelt by God's Spirit, bound together in love and unleashed on the world with gospel hope. That's not what they were anticipating. That's why the book of Acts, as Chip was praying a moment ago, rocked the world. It turned the world upside down. Nobody expected this. We thought we had seen everything. We hadn't seen, turns out, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the company of God's people moving together with gospel hope. Wherever those early Christians went, you just read through the book of Acts. I wish we could take time to unpack and go chapter by chapter. You read through the book of Acts, and what do you see? You see the company of the Holy Spirit, and wherever they go, life goes. Wherever they go, joy and gladness and hope goes with them. Where Christians went in the early church, wholeness went. This is in your notes, that the gospel we proclaim is a gospel that renews. I think it's so fitting uh, for us to finish a month where many of us, I hope, have been praying through the book of Acts, reading through the book of Acts, praying for our life and connection with what we see there in the early church, and for us to finish this benediction series by, by looking at what the book of Acts shows us in relationship to this phrase of Paul, the fellowship of Holy Spirit. You remember... Jesus' first sermon. So it's opening day of Jesus' ministry. This is his very, he's going public with his ministry. And what does he choose? He chooses the scroll of Isaiah and he moves down and he finds chapter 61. And this is what he reads on opening day. The spirit of the Lord is on me. And what does that mean for the world? Here's what it means. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, on opening day, chooses that text for a very specific reason. In other words, Jesus says, that's what you're going to be seeing. Everywhere I go, that's what you'll be seeing. The Spirit is on me for that purpose. You're going to hear me preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You're going to see people set free from demonic powers. You're going to see it in living color. And then you come to the book of Acts, or the end of the gospels, rather, and, and, and what does Jesus say? He says to his disciples, I know this is hard to imagine. This is going to blow your minds. It's going to get better when I leave. Because when I leave, I'll give you my spirit, and you will do the works that I did. And then what happens? You come over into the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, and they're waiting. Jesus ascends, and he says, wait right there. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. The spirit's going to come upon the church, and what? And you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Jesus pours his spirit on the church, and then you read the book of Acts, and what happens? The good news is preached. Captives are released, the blind receive their sight, the oppressed are set free. And in that way, I would submit to you, friends, Acts chapter 3 is not only a real historical event of the healing of a man who was born crippled, but it is a signpost of what the church, empowered by the Spirit, has for the world. There's a deeper story than just the story of healing. And And that's not just us making that up because theologically it makes sense. The text reveals that there's a deeper story than just this man being healed. This man who, by the way, is buried somewhere in Palestine right now. That wasn't the main point. And you see that because once this man has been healed and a crowd has been drawn and they're astonished at what happens, what do the apostles Peter and John do? They start preaching. In verse 12, the man's just been healed. They preach a message. And what's the message about? It's not about physical healing, wonderful as that is. They don't say, and you too can experience physical healing if you will. That's not the point. The, The healing got their attention and shows them something bigger that God is up to in the world. Here's what Peter says when he's got their attention. He's so glad you're here. This guy's running and dancing and screaming and singing behind him. He says, listen, fellow Israelites, Why are you so amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our ancestors, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, Jesus takes center stage for the rest of this sermon. Has glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you handed over and denied before Pilate, though he had decided to release him. In other words, Jesus is saying, this man is healed because of the name of Jesus, because Jesus was not a fake pretended Messiah, and God proved that he wasn't a fake pretended king because he raised him from the dead, and he says that in the next verse, in verse 15. And so what's the application of this sermon right after this guy's been healed? It's found right there in verse 17 to 19. He says, So in light of the fact that we've just found out who it is that healed this man and the identity of the one who was crucified, and now that he has been raised from the dead, vindicated by God the Father, he says, in essence, in verse 17 to 19, it's time to start repenting. 
It's time to receive forgiveness. And then he goes on to say in verse 20 to 25, Jesus is going to restore all things. There is a much bigger cosmic brokenness that Jesus has come to heal. This is just a glimpse. This man's healing is a glimpse of a much bigger restoration that affects the whole cosmos. Everything that's broken will be restored in and through Jesus. Why didn't they just have a healing service, right? Because from the beginning, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the company of God's people, empowered by His Spirit, is meant to point to ultimate life in Christ, ultimate wholeness, ultimate shalom through Jesus. And I think this story plays out in three acts. Number one, act one, brokenness encountered. Brokenness encountered. Just look there at verse 1. I'll read the first few verses. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple for the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. A man who was lame from birth was being carried there. He was placed each day at the temple gate called Beautiful so that he could beg from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to enter the temple, he asked for money. So the scene begins, Peter and John, verse 1, they're going to the temple to pray. It's, it's sort of the evening prayer service at the temple, and they're headed there, and they see this man, and he's placed there strategically. They've probably seen him before because he's there every day, the text says in verse 2. He's been crippled from birth. If you keep reading into the next chapter, there's more explanation in chapter 4. You find out in chapter 4, verse 22, he's over 40 years old, so he's probably been brought by his family and placed at that very spot every day for 30 years. This would have been a means of alleviating some of the financial burden and strain on his family, so they placed him there, and he would earn a little bit of money as people were going into the temple. He strategically placed because maybe people are inclined to compassion when they're going to worship, and they see him, and they can't not see him. He's right there at the most beautiful gate in the entrance to the temple court. High traffic area. He's there on purpose, and that man sits there. In Acts chapter 3, a picture of the world without Christ, a picture of a broken world. He can't stand. He can't move. They put him here at the beginning of the day. They come back and pick him up in that very same spot when the day is over. He can't move. He's immobile. It's a picture of the broken world around us, right? Pick any layer of life in this world. And you can tell something is wrong. Pick any layer of life in this world and you can tell something is wrong. Our minds aren't right. Our bodies aren't right. Famine, disease, natural disasters, upheavals in the, the natural order, marriage, parenting, family, government, church, everything. There's signs of brokenness, right? Genesis 3 has put its fingerprints on the world. Everything has been touched by the fall. That's why Bob Dylan wrote this song about brokenness. He, he writes these words, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. 
Broken cutters, broken saws, broken buckles, broken laws, broken bodies, broken bones, broken voices on broken phones. Take a deep breath. Feel like you're choking. Everything is broken. This man is broken. He's a picture of global brokenness. This is all he's ever known. This is where he is every day of his life. He sits here saying one word. Alms, alms for the poor. He says that day after day, he has one job, stay there, he has no choice about that part, and say, alms, we'll come back and pick you up at the end of the day. It's brokenness. Several years ago, author Russ Moore wrote about what happened when they went to pick up their sons from a Russian orphanage for their adoption. He said this, When my wife Maria and I at long last received the call that the legal process was over and we returned to Russia to pick up our new sons, we found that their transition from orphanage to family was more difficult than we had supposed. We dressed the boys in outfits our parents had bought for them. We nodded our thanks to the orphanage personnel and walked out into the sunlight to the terror of the two boys. They had never seen the sun, and they had never felt the wind. And he said, as they drove down the highway away from the orphanage, this is heartbreaking, he says, I noticed they were shaking and reaching back to the orphanage in the distance. I whispered to Sergei, whom they renamed Timothy, that place is a pit If only you knew what's waiting for you, a home with a mommy and a daddy who love you, grandparents and great-grandparents and cousins and playmates. But all they knew was the orphanage. It was squalid, but they had no other reference point. It was home. That was all they knew. And this is all this man knows. He shakes a can and he asks for alms. He asks for compassion. Give me something to sustain me. Maybe people drop a coin in the cup, but maybe if you're familiar with kind of just parts of our city where the homeless are, do you ever feel that inclination to look away? Especially if you don't have anything to give them. There's that inclination, don't, don't make eye contact. They're going to ask you for something and you don't have it. Right? Can you imagine how many people he saw the sides of their faces and it's like, what is there that is so absolutely compelling over their left shoulder? I'm here on the right. What is so absolutely magnetic about what's on the left for thousands of people headed to worship? He's not just a picture of brokenness. He's a picture of profound isolation. As a church, we must make eye contact with this world's broken. It's part of the gospel call. It's part of what it means to be the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the company of believers carrying a message of hope. And then you read, and that's exactly what happens. This eye contact is what happens next. I love verse 4. The language seems to be very intentional. Peter, along with John, looked straight at him. Some translations will say, gazed directly at him or looked intently at him at him and said, look at us. So he turned to them, expecting to get something from them. 
again, in the big picture, what's happening above Acts 3 in the narrow circumstances of this man's life and difficulty, in the big picture, something awesome is happening here. I love how one commentator described this. He wrote, Acts 3 is Christianity coming into contact with the dysfunction of the planet. Christianity coming into contact with the dysfunction of the planet. Now, the guy who's sitting at the gate, beautiful, doesn't know that, right? He doesn't know that there's this massive, cosmic, awesome project that he's about to hear about that comes through Jesus. He doesn't even know he's about to be healed. He just wants coins. That's all he's asking for. He just thinks he's going to get a little bit of money. And then what do they say? They say the one thing he doesn't want them to say. We don't have money. Silver and gold is the old translation, and maybe you sung it in VBS growing up. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, right? They, they don't have any mon- money. It's interesting. God scheduled this meeting precisely on a day that the apostles forgot their wallets at home. It's on purpose. Why? Because God had something better for this man, something more than what he was even asking for. He's asking for money. He's about to get legs. Something awesome is about to happen. He doesn't even know what he can ask for in this moment. He doesn't know he's looking at at the band, the company of the Holy Spirit who bring life out into the world wherever they go. Life comes. It's so easy, I think, as the church to fall into thinking that we can solve the world's problems by throwing money at it. We'll never buy our way out. We'll never educate or legislate our way out of conditions brought about by the fall in Genesis 3. For that, we're going to need a Messiah. And Peter and John will talk about that Messiah momentarily. They're going to point to this ultimate hope, this ultimate rescue that's found in Jesus. It was nearly 100 years ago that the Princeton, the great Princeton professor, brilliant New Testament scholar, J. Gresham Machen, wrote these words to describe his period and what the church was thinking about. A cardinal doctrine of modern theological liberalism is that the world's evil may be overcome by the world's good. No help is thought to be needed from outside the world. What was he confronting? He said there was this growing sense of embarrassment and skepticism about the supernatural and historical claims of the Christian faith, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead bodily, that he was born of a virgin, these awesome interferences of a God who broke in on planet Earth. And when Machen saw that the gospel was being replaced by kind of spiritual sentimentalism, and a mere kind of naked social activism, that's when he started to say, we have a supernatural faith. We need more than legislation and money. We need the gospel to break in on planet Earth and do its renewing work from the inside. It's the only real salvation. The problems of the world are deeper than what can be solved with mere financial contributions or humanitarian aid. This quote, maybe some of you have read When Helping Hurts, or maybe this, this other book by Robert Lupton, Toxic Charity. He writes this Africa can serve as a large scale example of the problem. In the last 50 years, the continent has received $1 trillion in benevolent aid. How effective has this aid been? Country by country, Africans are far worse off today 
than they were a half century ago. Overall per capita income is lower today than in the 1970s. Over half of Africa's 700 million population lives on less than $1 a day. Life expectancy has stagnated. Adult literacy has plummeted below pre-1980 levels. Quote, it's a kind of curse, says Dambisa Moyo, an African economist and the author of Dead Aid. Aid, though intended to promote health, becomes the disease of which it pretends to be the cure. Our problems are too complex for mere money. That's one of the reasons why while money matters and while generosity does open opportunities for us to bring blessing and strength and advance the gospel to the ends of the earth, there's nothing to take away from that. Roots and reach, we're not embarrassed of that. We're giving toward the cause of mission projects around the world. That's wonderful. But one of the reasons we've been praying all month is to say, we're not just throwing checks at the world. There's, there needs to be this spiritual power. We, we can't tear down strongholds with our checkbooks. We need something new, something glorious. Apart from, this is in your notes, the healing power that comes through the cross of Christ and the presence of the Spirit, there can be no real change in the world. Giving matters, but without prayer, we're dead in the water. Without gospel proclamation, we're dead in the water. Our money can't get this done. The the 13th century theologian, Thomas Aquinas, reportedly came in at that time for a meeting with Pope Innocent II, and when he walked into the room, legend has it, Pope Innocent II was counting money a large sum of money. And the Pope said, you see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, silver and gold have I none. Talk about speaking truth to power. Here's what Thomas Aquinas said. True, Holy Father, but neither can she now say, rise and walk. We got worldly wealth, but we lost other worldly power. That's what Aquinas was talking about. That's what's happening. That's the dynamic in Acts chapter 3. We don't have silver and gold. We have something much more dynamic. Energy that can change everything. Peter and John don't have worldly wealth, but they have other worldly power, which leads to the next point. Act 2, brokenness interrupted. Brokenness interrupted. This miracle of healing comes. Look at verse 6. But Peter said, I don't have silver or gold, but what I do have... I give you, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. Then taking him by the right hand, he raised him up, and at once his feet and ankles became strong. So, verse 8, he jumped up and started to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking, leaping, and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized that he was the one who used to sit and beg at the beautiful gate of the temple. So they were filled with awe and astonishment at what had happened to him. Look at the effect. He comes in just wanting some money to help him with his subsistence. And he leaves walking and leaping and praising God, the effect of of the work 
of the Spirit in his life, of Jesus' name and his power breaking forth in this brother's body, and up he comes, and he can't be silenced. He's making a scene on the way into the temple. You think about us as those who have been following Christ maybe for some time. So often, isn't this the case that the response of the newly rescued becomes something like a rebuke to those of us who have known Jesus for a long time. How tepid we've become in our response to his grace and his love in the gospel. I take it as my main business as a Christian to never let my soul grow cold to the glory of salvation. Friend, that is your main job. Letters to the church at Ephesus years after Paul had written his letter to Ephesus, and he comes back and Jesus says, you've lost your first love. You're doing all kinds of awesome stuff, but you've lost your first love. Your heart is tepid toward the glory of your salvation. Look, if tears of joy are wrong in worship, I don't want to be right. I don't want to get older in Christ and crusty and mean-spirited and unamazed by the grace of God. My, my family, we love to get together and our family reunions, we all just sing. We'll get around a piano. My mom will play. My grandma and mama will play. I'll play. Hunter will play. And we'll get the guitar guys out. And we'll just have a great time. And we'll sing songs and hymns and praise choruses for hours. One of the, one of the sweet things we've seen over the years is the older papa and mama got the more moist their eyes were when they sang. They, they never got over how awesome it is that we've been shown grace from a holy God. There was joy in the gospel right to the end. What a goal for us. Is that what you want as a Christian? Yeah, this, this guy... I love this picture that, that we see here. It's almost this running video, and we just see him go berserk. He just goes nuts. He hasn't read the Baptist, you know, handbook regarding what you're supposed to do in circumstances like this. He doesn't know the protocols. He doesn't know the etiquette, right? When, you, when one comes to the gate broken and leaves whole, one does. He's never read that. He's not familiar with that, so he improvises, and his improvisation is glorious. He's got legs. What do you expect him to do? I dare you to rebuke this guy. He's walking. He's leaping. He's singing. He's praising. He's making a scene. I love this. We don't have a picture in Acts 3 of a man who was composed in his religion before the world. We we have a picture of a man who's been wrecked by the gospel, utterly changed. Here's a question for us. Do we have circumstantial happiness or do we have gospel joy? Do we have mere circumstantial happiness or do we have gospel joy? Here's the thing. In the New Testament, you don't just see joy when somebody's been healed, like this guy in Acts 3. Jesus endures the cross for the joy that is set before him. You hear Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16, they've just been flogged, 
They're in stocks. They're in jail. It's midnight. They probably haven't slept. Their sores are aching tremendously. And what is the sound that comes out of that jail cell in Acts chapter 16? It's time to sing. Paul and Silas, and it says, all the people in the jail could hear them down there singing hymns. Who sings when your back's just been laid open? Who does that? People with deep-seated gospel joy is the answer. What about us? Is there a discernible joy in Jesus when we gather? Is there observable longing for God? Is there a clinging to the promises of the gospel? Is there a thrill at the prospect of heaven? Is there a blessed hope that is animating our praise, our worship of our God? This is why we sing the gospel every Sunday. We make no apology. This is why we sing big, deep, huge truths about a big, awesome, sufficient God every week because nothing sustains a life of faith and perseverance like a heart that delights in Jesus. It shows when that's discernible among us, even when we gather, it demonstrates to onlookers that our treasure is Jesus Christ, not the things of earth. We have food this world doesn't know about. What happened at the beautiful gate that day is an outward sign of what God wants to do inwardly through Christ. What's that mean? It means this Acts 3 is the story, it's a deeper story of what happens in salvation. God finds us broken. No one is righteous, not even one. Nobody can make themselves acceptable to God. No one seeks after him. We're born in this condition. We're unable to move in his direction, move toward God. That's the picture that you see there in Acts chapter 3. And God in his grace initiates contact. He, he sets his gaze on your soul in Christ. And through the gospel, he calls. Hey, look at me. He calls for your attention. Faces up to sinners in the gospel. And when we study the gospels, for example, we walked through Mark a couple of years ago, we see a Savior who finds sinners. He loves finding sinners. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, just watch him in action. He even says, this is why I'm here. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, and so he just keeps finding them. He finds a woman at a well in Samaria. He finds a tax collector perched on a branch of a sycamore tree, and the Jesus of the Gospels is still on the move in the book of Acts. He's risen and he's chasing sinners down. He catches the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. He catches Saul of Tarsus in Acts 9. He catches Cornelius in Acts 10. He catches Lydia in Acts 16. And in their own way, each of them went walking and leaping and praising God. As the old hymn says, Grace finds us beggars and leaves us debtors. Finds us beggars and leaves us debtor. Finds us broken, leaves us whole. We see a miracle at the ninth hour at the beautiful gate, but a bigger story that Peter wants to tell is about a deeper healing. He talks about the restoration, quote, of all Things, times of refreshing that will come from him, global blessing. I mean, he gets, 
he gets really big, really fast. He goes macro with this, with this story. And that leads us to Act 3. Brokenness banished. There at the end in verse 25, he reaches all the way back to Genesis 15. Look at that for just a second. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your ancestors, saying to Abraham, and all the families of the earth will be blessed through your offspring. God raised up his servant and sent him first to you to bless you by, here's the, here's the ultimate blessing, by turning each of you from your evil ways. There's a deeper brokenness that the gospel's after. He's reaching all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. 2,000 years, he's just put you on a train and taken you 2,000 years deep into Old Testament history, and he's saying, this blessing of God of which you've caught a glimpse just now, this blessing is meant not just for people who are sitting within a stone's throw of the temple. It's meant for all the families of the earth. It's meant to reach the nations. All the nations are invited into this preview that you've seen, but they're invited into a greater fullness of it in the new covenant. The curse will be abolished. That's what he means when he's talking about the restoration of all things. Every sad thing has, has been said. Every sad thing will come untrue. This is in your notes. This story of healing is a preview of a future of fullness. By the time Peter finishes preaching, he says, in no uncertain terms, the risen Lord has the power to roll back the curse of the fall. The risen Lord not only can heal the sick, that's an appetizer. He can forgive sins. He can grant eternal life. He promises resurrection bodies on the other side of the grave. You see this man born crippled dancing his way into the temple. You see a preview of the future for the world, the joy-giving, world-renewing grace of Jesus through the gospel. Friends, that's our mission as the company of the Holy Spirit, as the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's our mission. The fellowship of the Spirit is a unified people empowered for the spread of global joy. Let's say that again. The fellowship of the Spirit is a unified people empowered for the spread of global joy. No wonder we call it good news. Have you believed this good news? That the God who could have judged us in our sin sent a savior, a redeemer, who took our blame, took our sin, went to the cross as a substitute for us, died in our place, rose again triumphant over the grave and sin and Satan, and offers new life to all who repent and believe. Have you believed this gospel? Believe it today. Run to the only one who saves. Have you believed this good news? Are you carrying this good news? If you're a Christian, follower of Jesus, are you carrying this good news? There's a poem at the end of a book by author John Piper. The name of the book is Future Grace. And he describes the arrival of what I think Peter's referring to when he talks about the restoration of all things, the arrival of the new heavens and the new earth. 
speaking of this work that God will do, Jesus will do when he returns for his own. And I love the way he unfolds this picture of the restoration of all things. He writes, and as he spoke, the throne of God came down to earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night. And from the throne a stream began to flow and laugh and as it ran it made a river and a lake and everywhere it flowed a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie, fast as she could come. She leaped the stream, almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. I knelt to drink, and I know that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned, I saw a wonder there. A big man running on the lawn. That's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free. And every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within. And every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy. And endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand and love the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. Joy comes from Jesus to the world through the gospel, through a people of hope, through the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, a company of the redeemed. And here's the great news. Anybody can get in on this. <laughs> doesn't matter what you've said, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what's been done to you, the shame that you might feel, he can find you. He can find you, he can heal and forgive and cleanse and restore everything. The same Spirit who gives us life sends us as life givers. The same spirit who gives us life sends us as life givers. Friends, more and more, I, I read the New Testament through the lens of mission, really the Bible through the lens of mission. If, if our study of Scripture doesn't lead us to raise anchor and make for open waters in a world that needs Jesus, we're missing the point. We haven't yet understood the purpose of the passage in hand. If God's love and, and the grace of Jesus, which we talked about for the last two weeks, if that just makes us hunker down in safety together until Jesus comes back, we're missing the point. We talked about the grace of Jesus. We talked about the love of God. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, Paul isn't reducing the Holy Spirit to the person of the Trinity responsible for giving people Pentecostal goosebumps. When they're gathering service or they're singing their favorite song, Paul is not in effect saying at the end of this letter, grace and love and awesome quiet times be with you all. That is not the purpose. We're the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, which means we're a spirit-empowered company of disciples. And if we do this right, we're a life-spreading movement. 
Fellowship of the Holy Spirit is a life-spreading movement. Where we go in Jesus' name, life breaks in where there was death before. That, that's the gospel mission on move in the world. People locked in shame go free. And they go walking and leaping and praising God. The purpose of this benediction isn't to settle Corinth in comfort. The purpose of this benediction is to turn Corinth and us toward open waters and to breathe into our sails. May it be.